So uh, we're, we're talking this fall about what happens when heaven comes down to earth. You know, what Jesus came to do was to bring, he was the king of heaven and he came down from heaven to earth to bring the presence of heaven to this world. And sometimes, you know, you think about what would it look like if heaven comes down to earth, and it sounds like kind of a fairy tale, like maybe you'll hear angels singing hallelujah and everybody uh, worshiping before the altar with their hands raised and their eyes closed. But actually, when heaven comes to earth, it's more like a collision. It's more like, you know, when an asteroid comes out of space and hits the earth's atmosphere and burns upon re-entry and then, then creates a big crater and causes all this mayhem, like, like in the, the science fiction movies. That's what happens when heaven comes to earth. And the place where this manifests itself, or one of the places where the damage of heaven coming to earth makes itself real, is in the space of our relationships. As people with different values and different ideals, with different priorities and different... Uh, and, and different ways of seeing things come together and try to work things out. And so the Sermon on the Mount, as it gives us direction and guidance for what it looks like when heaven comes to earth, it gives us some guidance in the area of our relationships. And the good thing about it is that it's so realistic. This is not pious advice that sounds sort of out there. This is, this is realistic advice for the world that we live in. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth. You know, that basic law of justice that whatever you take from me, I have the right to uh, take back and then some. And, uh, you know, it's a picture of human conflict because when you're trying to enforce the ideal of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, what happens? You know, any of you have little brothers or little sisters? You know, little brother or little sister takes something or big brother or big sister takes something and you take it back and then it just kind of, it escalates upward from there. It's never like, okay, well, that, that's fair. You can have it back. Uh, but, but when we're trying to create justice on our own terms, the problems escalate and conflict ex escalates. Uh, the best picture I, I can remember of this comes from uh, Huckleberry Finn. Any of you guys ever read Huckleberry Finn? Remember that story? Old uh, Huck Finn is, is uh, floating down the Mississippi, sort of a runaway orphan child. And he meets various people along the way. And, and he, 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 as he floats south, he gets into the south. And he meets a, a southern family called the Grangefords. And he makes friends with a little guy named Buck, who's about his age. And, uh, and he also meets the Shepherdsons. And the Shepherdsons and the Grangefords are these southern aristocrats. You, you know, you've probably read about the type. As Huckleberry Finn says, they were high-toned and well-born and rich and grand. And so he's hanging out with his, little new, his new little buddy, Buck, and they're walking through the woods, and all of a sudden they see someone coming towards them on a horse, and Buck takes his gun and takes a shot at this guy. And then they miss, and so the guy starts chasing them, and they run away, and they get away. And, and Buck is like, what just happened? This, my, my buddy here just tried to kill someone. And so they have this dialogue. I'll, I'll read it to you. So Huck says... Did you want to kill him, Buck? And Buck says, well, you bet I did. And Huck, Huckleberry Finn says, well, what did he do to you? Him? He never done nothing to me. Well, then, why did you want to kill him? Seems like a reasonable question. And 
And Buck says, why nothing? It's only on account of the feud. What's a feud? Huckleberry Finn asks. Why, where was you raised? Don't you know what a feud is, says Buck? A feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man, and he kills him. Then the other man's brother kills him, and then the other brothers on both sides goes for one another, and then the cousins chip in, and by and by, everyone's killed off, and there ain't no more feud. But it's kind of slow, and it takes a long time. That's how it works. That's kind of a picture of the human condition. I think it's kind of a picture of hell. By and by, everyone's killed off, but it's kind of slow, and it takes a long time. And some of you might be locked in something like that in the world you live in, maybe in your neighborhood, or maybe in your office, or among your coworkers, or maybe you feel that way even among the people who you are uh, related to. You know, it's kind of a picture sometimes of, of something that happens in, you know, sometimes in the neighborhoods right around here where people get these beefs and they just hold on to them and things just get worse and worse and worse. But here's the first thing I want to show you is that the power of heaven is the power to let things go. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say you do not resist someone who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two miles. What Jesus is talking about is you need to be strong enough to let things go. When he talks about people suing you to take the coat off your back or, or slapping you on the cheek, he's not talking about mortal danger here. He's talking about insults. He's talking about being disrespected. And Jesus is saying, you've got to have the strength to let these things go. In Proverbs verse 19, chapter 19, verse 11, the Proverbs puts it this way, good sense makes you slow to anger, and it is your glory to overlook an offense. It is your glory to overlook an offense. What he's talking about there is, is if, as you get a certain amount of strength, as you get a certain amount of personal, personal gravitas, as you get a certain amount of rootedness, then you can overlook the offenses when they come. And let me just give you an extreme example. Don't want to disturb anyone, but, but you know, we've heard accounts of grown men who beat up little kids, right? And occasionally you hear those stories. And uh, what, what do you think about that grown man in those situations? You think, what is wrong with that guy? Why would a, a grown man beat up a little kid? What, what, and and you, you say, that, that is a, a weak man, that is a flawed man, that, that is a broken man, because that's the kind of person who who would do something like that. What do you expect of a grown man when a little kid annoys him, when a little kid offends him, when a little kid is rude? You expect a grown man to be able to handle that in a measured way, even if the little kid does make him angry. You expect a certain amount of self-control because it's the strength of a grown man is, is uh, that you don't retaliate against someone little. But what Jesus is saying here, what Proverbs is saying is, it's your glory to overlook an offense. If you're rooted in your relationship with God, if you're rooted in the grace of God, if you're rooted in your identity as a child of God, then one of the things that gives you the power to do is to let things go. To not worry about being disrespected because 
you're more concerned about God's respect than, than what other people say to you. And in fact, to rise above those conflicts and to rise above those petty little issues. It, the deeper you're, you're rooted in the grace of God and the power of God, the easier it is for you to overlook the offenses that inevitably come in this world as we interact in this world. Um, you know, uh, when we talk about these feuds, when you see this picture of the, this sort of satirical picture of this feud between these two uh, old Southern families in the book of Huckleberry Finn, or you hear about a feud between two of your family members, or you hear about a feud between some of your friends, you realize how petty often these things are. At, as uh, Buck and Huckleberry Finn go on talking about this, he, he's, he's like, Huckleberry Finn says, well, what started this feud? And Buck says, well, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. I think my father knows, but it was something to do with his father and, and you know, went, went way back, but, but it, it doesn't matter anymore because the, the feud is on. And we realize how it comes from being not grounded in our in the gospel, and as, as we grow to understand what that means, as we grow to understand what the kingdom of God is, as we grow to understand how that changes our life, it gives, one of the things it does for us is it gives you the power to let things go. It gives you the glory in your life, the glory to overlook an offense. But most of all, we learn this from our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that happened to Jesus, you, you know, remember the story of Jesus at one point, or toward the end of his life, he's arrested. And when he's arrested, the disciples say, this might be the moment, this might be where the, where the rebellion starts. So Peter says, should I pull out my sword? Is, this, is it time to fight now? I think we got this. And Jesus says to him, Peter, put your sword away. If I wanted to, I could call legions of angels, but then how would my mission be fulfilled? See, Jesus was willing to take the insult. He was willing to take the hit because he knew who he was. He knew what he had come to do, and he was focused on that, even though it was difficult for him, even though it was painful for him. So it was precisely Jesus' identity as the Son of God and as the commander of angels and as the Savior of the world that enabled him to endure the insults he endured and accomplish and experience the glory that was laid out for him. And in the same way, if you're following him, if you know him, if he touches your life, you'll still get insulted. You'll still be disrespected. You'll still have to endure unfair circumstances, but you can have the glory that enables you to overlook an offense. So the gift of heaven is the power to let things go to let a feud go. Now I want to talk about the miracle of heaven. And the miracle of heaven is this thing that's absolutely incoherent to the American, to, to the modern experience. And that, that is the power to love your enemies. Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And, uh, you know, this is one of those things that I believe it's totally incoherent to the modern imagination because of the way that we define love. You know, the way our culture defines love, the way our songs and our movies and our stories define love, the way even we, we practice love in our relationships sometimes. Uh, you know, 
I, I mean, I remember one of the songs, the greatest hit of the 80s, but it, it was, you know, I can't fight this feeling anymore. And this idea that love is this feeling that comes over you that you just, you just can't fight. Or we talk about love as, as it's, it's like something you fall into. Like we're all just kind of wandering around, kind of lost, but then all of a sudden we fall, and we fall into love. And it's like, oh, I've fallen in love. I can't help it. I've fallen into love. I, 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 I have excuses for any bad decisions I'm going to make now because I've fallen into love. Uh, you can't hold me responsible for anything I do. And then, but then the problem is when you fall into love, you discover that, that that pit you've fallen into, that's a false bottom. So you keep wandering around in, in the bottom of that pit, and then you fall again, and you've fallen out of love, right? And uh, so once you've fallen out of love, you're not responsible for that either. It's just, it just happened to you, and, and you got no control over it. But as, as you might have guessed, I think the, when the Bible talks about love, it's talking about something completely different than this. It's not a feeling we can't fight. It's not something we fall into and fall out of. The Bible commands us to love, to love God, to love our neighbors, to love one another, and all these other things, because... The Bible sees love as the Bible uses the word. I mean, it's as something totally different. It's a decision we make. It's a commitment we make. And it's, it's essentially this. It's a choice to sacrifice my best interests for the sake of the interest of someone else. And to, put, to put the well-being of someone else ahead of my own well-being. And, and, you know, when we make that choice, then we're exercising love. And there's times in our life when that's natural. I think the most natural example of exercising love or practicing love that, that, I, that I've observed is, is if you look at a mother with a baby. You know, the baby comes into your life, and the baby says, I'm going to demand everything you can't have. I'm going to take take all of your energy, all of your health, I'm going to take all of your money, I'm going to take all of your sleep, everything you've got, I'm taking, this, this little baby says. And mom says, okay, that's what I'll do, because we're the parents, because I'm the mom, because you love that child, you know, giving up your health, giving up your, your energy, giving up your time, giving up your devotion, it just, it just comes naturally, because that's that's, that's how we're wired. What's supernatural is when you choose to love someone who's not quite as lovable as that newborn baby. When you choose, when you choose to give of your well-being to, to, towards someone who doesn't elicit the same kind of feelings of affection as a, a brand new baby does in your life. Or, and what's, what's really profound is if you find a way to love an adversary or an antagonist in, in your life. And so the question is, how do you do that? Jesus says, love your enemies. It, it's like, how, how does one even do that? Well, he actually, you know, it's complicated and it's difficult, but Jesus is a master teacher. So he says, love your enemies, and then he says, well, here is... Baby step number one, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you everything that's involved in loving your enemies. I'm not going to tell you the end goal of what that's going to look like in your particular case, but I'm just going to tell you the baby step here. The baby step in your life, if you want to learn what it means to love your enemies, 
say a prayer for someone who persecutes you. So I think, I think there, there's a genius there. It's because, you know, because everyone quotes, well, Jesus said, love your enemies, but, but they don't point out that Jesus also tells us or shows us how, or at least shows us what the very first step is. And I think if we follow the first step, then the second, third, and fourth, and fifth step will begin to become clear to us. And so, uh, you know, and I think what he's telling us to do there is to ask God for, to have mercy on our enemies, to ask God to show grace towards our enemies, to ask God to reveal his love to our enemies, to ask God to give our enemies faith, to, to bring them to reconciliation, to restoration, to repentance. And, uh, you know, no matter who your enemies are, you can pray that for them. And so, in fact, I want to, you know, I, I'm, uh, we talk a lot in church, but I think sometimes we can apply the things that, uh, that we talk about. And I, I was thinking about it, just uh, knowing the human condition. I bet everybody here has somebody in their life who you're thinking, this, it, it would be actually impossible for me to love this person. So visualize that person. Maybe it's someone you're uh, in your family. Maybe it's someone you work with. Maybe it's someone who lives in your community or someone who uh, you haven't talked to in years and years and years. So everyone have that person. Not if you brought that person to mind. And if you're not nodding, I'm not believing you. Just keep thinking until that person comes to mind because everybody's got one. Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to pray. And I'll, I'll lead us in a prayer, and you just uh, pray with me. And uh, so this is a little excursus from the sermon. You just pray with me and, and, and apply this prayer to this person. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. And Father, you put challenging people into our lives. But we're reminded that those challenging people are also people who are hurt and who are flawed and who need your grace. And so we ask now that you would pour out your grace in their lives. We ask that you would show them your love for them we ask that you would give them the gift of faith. We ask even that through a miracle that we can't foresee right now, that you would allow us to be reconciled to them, allow them to be reconciled to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, was that so difficult? See, so you can do that. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You know, hell is the perpetuation of a feud where people keep saying an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and, and we just keep killing each other till everybody's dead, and it's just kind of slow, and it takes a long time. But, and we know neighborhoods, and, and we know families like that, you know, companies like that, business partnerships that have been like that you know, where people just get locked in lawsuits and nothing's ever resolved but, but, uh, but, the, uh, but all, all the resources are exhausted. But if that's what hell is, this is how heaven comes down to earth. When one of God's children thinks about someone they've got a beef with and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go into my room. I'm going to close the door. I'm going to get on my knees, and I'm just going to pray for this person. That's the beginning of the intrusion of heaven to earth. Now, 
having said all that, I, I, I just want to want to note one other thing. Uh, you know, this is a complicated topic that a lot of Christian thinkers have thought about. One of them was John Stott, who was a great uh, British Bible teacher and, and scholar and Christian leader of the last uh, century. But and he has an extended chapter on this on this and what it means, where he goes through all the different academic interpretation. But at the end, he says, no one was a greater exponent, a greater, a greater, a greater uh, teacher on this particular topic than the American preacher, Martin Luther King. And so let me just read a quote by Martin Luther King that, that puts this in perspective. King says, returning hate for hate just multiplies hate adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence in a descending spiral of destruction. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's setting forth a profound and ultimately inescapable admonition. Have we not come to such an impasse in the modern world that we must love our enemies? Or else, the chain reaction of evil, of hate begetting hate, of wars producing wars, must be broken or will be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. I don't think truer words have ever been spoken. But we've got to recognize this is not natural. This is supernatural what we're talking about is not something you can decide to do it's something that god has to do in you and on you and then maybe he'll do it through you so what is this talking about it, it it's the power to let go it's your glory to overlook an offense and it's the law of love which starts by being willing to pray for those who persecute you and then finally it's discovering our new identity as children of heaven and children of God. Because all of this happens because of something supernatural that's going on inside of our hearts and minds. Look at what, what Jesus says here in verse 44. He says, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you might be called children of your Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on the evil and good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Everybody does that. You know, it's not hard to love people who love you. The thing that's supernatural, the thing that's profound, is when you love somebody who doesn't love you, right? When you choose to love somebody who's not so gracious or so kind to you. And heaven comes down when we find the way to love, to love people who don't love us. And that comes to us as we live out our new identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven you know he says love your enemies pray for those who persecute you that you might be called sons and daughters of your father who is in heaven see it's it's your connection to him it's his power in your life it's his presence in your life that makes this possible and so you know what is it that makes you someone who bears the mark of of uh your father in heaven, is it your church attendance? Is it your doctrinal precision? Is it your religious practice? It's none of those. It's how you treat other people. The Bible says this over and over again. It's the fruit of, of a, 
an authentic Christian life is displayed in how we treat other people. And everybody can love the people who already love them. It's how you treat the most difficult of people that shows what you are really made of and shows where your heart really is. You know, the, it's easy to perpetuate a cycle. The hard thing is to find the glory in your life to break the cycle. And I think this goes back for all of us. This is not something we can work up or gin up in ourselves, no matter how hard we want to try. This is something that happens as we realize what it is that Jesus came and did for us. Romans 5, you can pop that up on the screen. These are some profound verses. In Romans 5, he says, God chose his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We remember that God loved sinners. God loved imperfect people. God loved moral failures. And in fact, he loved them by sacrificing himself for them. And it's knowing that that changes our identity, changes our perspective on things. And then Romans 5.10 goes on to say, while we were enemies, while we were enemies to God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So the model, the power, the presence starts with experiencing God's love for you. Starts with recognizing your guilt and need for grace. And once you've, once you've come to believe that God loved you even when you were a moral failure, you can find the resources somewhere to show love for the people who have failed you. Once you come to believe and understand that God reconciled himself to you even when you were his enemy, you can seek to pray for and work for your reconciliation of the people with the people who you are estranged from. Jesus, the king came, he loved sinners, and while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Uh, you know, he prayed for those who persecuted them. He withheld, you know, they, they were beating him up, getting ready to hang him on the cross. And what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And, you know, that just, just as an aside, that, that if you don't know what to pray for someone who's really antagonistic toward you, who, who you're completely estranged from, who's completely hostile to you, who you can't even talk to, and who has no interest in reconciliation, a good place to start is just to imitate that prayer. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Because just as Jesus had that insight about the people who were killing him, you can believe that and know that that's true about the people who are aggravating you. But, see, if you understand this about yourself, if the power of God's grace has become real to you, that is the path, I'm not saying this is an easy path or an automatic path or a simple path by any means, but it's through that path. If you walk down that path, you'll find along the way the resources to exercise that kind of love and to exercise that kind of grace towards the people that you are estranged from. Because the gospel, if you believe the gospel, the gospel is simply this, that God loved us when we were his enemies, that Jesus sacrificed himself for us when we were 
sinners. And that means that as that takes hold of your life, you're going to find, as you go deeper in that, the power to love your enemies, the power to sacrifice for the sinners that you find yourself surrounded with. And, you know, we have these troubled relationships, okay? Everybody, raise your hand if you've got a troubled relationship. I should see every hand raised. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> every, everyone's got a troubled relationship or two in their life, okay? Uh, from, from the youngest of us to the oldest of us, I would imagine. And everybody in between. But, you know, here's, here's the challenge. Here's the opportunity. What, the, what this, this is saying is those are the places where the kingdom of God's going to come into your life. Those are the peop, places where you're going to experience the grace of God. Those are the places where you're going to experience the power of God. Those are the opportunities for you to understand what it means that Jesus loved you when you were estranged from him, what it means that Jesus died for you when you were a sinner, and knowing that, experiencing that, the kingdom, of, the power of the kingdom will come down. So we can start, you know, the kingdom of God, it, com- it starts with ourselves, with our challenges, our own challenges in our own relationships, the challenges you have in your family, in your extended family, the challenges you have in your communities, the challenges you have with your neighbors, with your colleagues at work. Uh, you know, I don't think this is a situation where you've got to pray for opportunities. I think everybody's got the opportunities. You know what they are. It's making you feel terrible right now. Um, those difficult, frustrating, and annoying circumstances. But just remember, you're a child of the King if you're a follower of Christ. Jesus is your Savior. Jesus is also your elder brother. He's not ashamed in spite of yourself. He's not ashamed to call you his bro- to be called your brother, to call you his brother and, and his sister. And he invites you as his child to do something spectacular, to bring the kingdom of God. You can be a part of bringing the kingdom of God to earth by simply doing this, saying a prayer for someone you find impossible to love. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that uh, by your grace you would make this real to us, make this powerful to us. Uh, and, And Father, for those of us who are still struggling, even as we talk this through, I just ask that, that, uh, Jesus would meet them in their struggle and uh, they would be, they would see for the first time perhaps what it means that Jesus loves sinners and what it means for us that you reconciled yourself to us when we were your enemies, that we might be representatives of Christ in the way that we interact with others. Father, this isn't natural, it's supernatural, so do something supernatural in our midst, we pray. In his name, amen. So let me read a, a little a verse that is a call to confession, then we'll, we'll just have a moment of uh, silent prayer and reflection. First John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful, and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would hear our confessions. We look at your 
your word and its demands might crush us, but we come to you in hope of your mercy. So here are our confessions, we pray.